So we are going to look at uh, John chapter 5, and we're going to um, skip actually the story in John 5 that uh, prompts this, and we're going to be reading in, um, in verse 17, but I'm sorry, I just lost my place here. Uh, the story is an uh, uh, invalid man, 38 years he was uh, invalid, and he had, the, he had the idea that when you, when the pool that he was by, when it was stirred, then uh, that's the first person in would get healed. And he couldn't get there because uh, he was invalid. And so we, we pick up where Jesus is, is explaining his relationship to the Father. And this is a long discourse, but um, it's a very significant part in Scripture. John 5, beginning at verse 17. My Father's working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of the life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. Uh, sorry, is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. 
but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you ever believe my words? Let's pray together. Father, for a few moments we pray that your Holy Spirit would be present here with us as we look to your scriptures. We pray that you would teach us because we need to be taught and corrected and encouraged. May you be present now with us in Christ's name. Amen. I assume that you know the name Arnold Palmer. It's a drink. It's a person. I don't know if you know the name Arnold Potter. Arnold Potter was born in New York in uh, 1804, and he was given the Melchizedek priesthood by Joseph Smith. So he's part of the Church of the, uh, Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. Brigham Young himself, two big hitters in, in that church, uh, gave him a call to go to Australia, and he went as a missionary to Australia. So he's on this ship called the Osprey. And he underwent, he said, a purifying, quickening change where a spiritual body entered into his body and he became Potter Christ, the living God. We'll come back to uh, Potter Christ, but there are many people who have claimed to be Christ, and so that's not that unusual. But what's unusual is Jesus Christ who actually claims to be God and then shows it. So let's look at verse 8. Just by the command in verse 8, he just says, get up, take up your bed and walk. This man who is not able to walk rises just by him speaking. And then you'll see his statement in 17 and 18. He says, my father is working until now. He, he claims that God is his father. And if you think we're misunderstanding what Jesus said, you'll see in verse 18, the Jews see red when they hear this. They seek all the more to kill him. Not because he just broke the Sabbath, though that's, that's a big crime, but because he made himself equal with God. 
calling God his own father. And this verse is helpful in understanding this passage because that is really the key uh, through this passage is that Christ is equating himself with God, saying he is the same as God. He also uh, calls to himself, he says that he has the attributes of deity. So you looked at Arnold Potter and you didn't see those attributes. You look at Christ and basically what Christ is saying, I am the same as the Father. If you see me, you've seen the Father. We have a a confession called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I want to read uh, a section of that, and I hope you'll understand how these Jewish leaders had the idea of God, and then they looked at Christ, and they said, this is incongruous. This doesn't fit. Now, I'm not suggesting that these Jewish leaders knew this confession. It's written in the mid-1600s. But they had a similar view of God, a high view of God. So let me read this. And and this is, if you've never read this confession, if this doesn't convince you, nothing will. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature's which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men Every other creature, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience, he is pleased to require of them. So you can see that when when Jesus said that he is the same as God, they had this enormous, massive view of God. Now we know they didn't understand God correctly, but they still had this view of God that was somewhat orthodox. Jesus says, I am the same as God. In fact, if you look at verses 21, 24, and 25, Jesus gives life. In other words, he himself can raise the dead in 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. An hour is coming, verse 25, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. We think of God as judging. Look at verses 28 and 29. For the Father judges no one, Christ says, 
but has given all judgment to the Son. And then in 28 and 29, for now is an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. He is claiming all these things for himself. He is saying that he exists eternally. Verse 26. For as the Father has, and here's the phrase, life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He's not dependent on anyone. This life is in himself. And in all these things, he is saying he has unity with God the Father. We read this in verse 17 earlier in the chapter. You'll see this in verse 19. The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Don Carson wrote this, It is impossible for the Son to take independent, self-determined action that would set Him over against the Father as another God. For all the Son does is both coincident and coextensive with all that the Father does. It follows that separate, self-determined action would be a denial of His Sonship. Well, having said that, now I want to induce, introduce a small wrinkle in the Trinity, which, if you're a Bible reader, you already know this. But I'm inter- going to introduce two words that you might not be familiar with, and it might help you. Well, first I want to read three verses, and I want you to uh, look at the verb that is the same in all these three verses. All right? Here's, here are the three verses, 23, 30, and 37. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. 30. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So that verb is sent. The Father sends the Son. And the Son does the will of the Father. The Father in Scripture initiates, sends, commands, commissions, and grants while the Son responds, obeys, performs His Father's will, and receives authority. You can say the Son is subordinate to the Father in one sense. And let me describe that that one sense. So when you talk about the Trinity... Um, people that teach or preach don't like to talk about it too much because if you try to explain it, you kind of fall off the cliff and get into heresy. So uh, theologians have made a difference with a word called the ontological trinity 
and the economic. So the ontological is just the being, uh, who he is. We say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We talk about uh, ontology, which has to do with being. And that just describes their existence. And then there's something called the economic trinity. It has nothing to do with, with finance. But that's how they relate to each other and their roles in creation and redemption. It comes from a Greek word, I'm sure you all know this, oikonomikos, which means relating to the arrangement of activities. That's not relevant. But what it does, it, it just helps us understand what these, uh, what these differences are. For instance, this, the Bible never says the Son sends the Father. The Bible never sends, says that the Son applies the work of the cross to our hearts. Though, the, though, though they're equal in power, glory in being, yet there is a, sub, a subordination of the Son in the economy of redemption. But, but wait, that doesn't mean that the Father is a little more equal than the Spirit. God is one. Yet in terms of redemption, the Son does the will of the Father. But they are so unified and so in love with each other that to do the will of the other is not a burden. And so the relationship with the Trinity is the foundation of all our love. If you can understand the Trinity, which you never will, but if you spend your whole life learning about the Trinity, it's the foundation of all Christian theology and all love. Can you imagine a father being so in love with the Son or the Spirit that there's complete trust? Uh, you can't imagine when your son is, let's say, 18, giving him the keys to your car and saying, I completely trust you. But with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they are in unity they love one another. It's a joy to serve each other. And from eternity, God existed. The triune God, loving, overflowing with joy, satisfied eternally with no needs or no wants. And out of that joy, out of that overabundance of love, God created the world and created us. Not because He needed but because he loved. One author said this, when you're trying to express things about the Trinity, it invites the mind to assume such a high level of abstraction that fundamental errors about concrete matters can go unnoticed. In other words, it's so tricky, you hate to say too much in public for fear you'll say the wrong thing. I do love verse 20. Jesus just says, for the Father loves the Son. Now, that's not a love that, that we use. It's not like saying, yeah, I love my dog. Yeah, I love ice cream. Yeah, I, love, I love my house. Whatever it is. No, this is a love that he doesn't share with anyone else. The Father loves the Son. And the Son knows that so well. So, 
what Jesus is saying in this chapter is something like what the uh, Westminster Confession says. And, and by the way, how the church has described Christ has, has been difficult. There's been errors on every side. But this is a pretty good summary of what the Bible says. And again, this is, this is uh, in the 1600s. It's uh, not in the first century, and it's not Scripture, but it's a good summary. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhead, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the one mediator between God and man. Now Jesus not only said that he was God, he rallies witnesses, and we'll go through this rather fast. We're going to follow it in the way that the Bible puts it, but it's not in the order of importance. If you did the order of importance of these witnesses, you would put John, his works, Scripture, and the subset of Moses, and then, of course, the massive witness to Jesus Christ, which he repeats uh, throughout the book of John, is God the Father. He says this over and over again. So we'll start with works in uh, 16, 18, and 36. Uh, verse 36, For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And then, of course, John uh, the baptizer. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Um, you might say out of order. The Father, 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And then uh, Scripture in verse 39. And, and when he's saying this, you realize how important it is. He's saying that these Jewish people who studied the Bible so much that if you read in the Hebrew Bible, you can find the word it's written in the Hebrew Bible that is in the middle of the Hebrew Bible. They were so conscientious about copying and, and studying and he says this, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. They called themselves sons of Abraham. They, they thought of themselves as part of, of Moses. And he says in 45 and 46, do not think I will accuse you to the Father there is one who accuses you. And this is the last person they would think would accuse them. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, which he's saying you clearly do not, you would have believed me. 
for he wrote of me. So that's the, that's the claim to deity. That's the witness to deity. And now the response. You would think that if God came to earth, people would just run to him and want to learn from him. They would care about what he said. They would look at his works and they would say, how did you do this? How did you just walk on water? That's not what happened. They rejected him. From the moment Christ was born till they finally succeeded, violence was never far from him. Someone was always trying to kill him. I've thought of that as I've been on, in my own home and I've thought, how would that make me feel if I knew that someone was always trying to kill me? He said in verse 40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 43, I've come in my Father's name. I'm an ambassador for him and you do not receive me. Uh, my mother, who's 92, has macular degeneration. She lives alone because my father passed away. He lived in a house she's been for about 40 years. And uh, I don't blame her for that blindness. But the blindness these people have, it's a guilty, culpable blindness. There's no such thing in the medical world, but there is morally. I want to tell you a quick story and then read a quote. Uh, Forty years ago, I read a quote that I, I could barely believe. And I, I've always loved footnotes. I know that's strange, but I read footnotes when I read books, and I, I get the books that they mention. This one, I've, I said, I can't believe this. And I went into the library, and I had that book in my hand, and it was there. Uh, it's by Aldous Huxley. You may know him as uh, the author of, author of A Brave New World. He died the same day as uh, JFK and C.S. Lewis. This is what he wrote. This is about 1937. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none. And I was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics, that is just philosophy. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find more advantageous to themselves. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed they embodied the meaning, a Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our political 
and erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. So much for intellectual honesty, right? I do respect uh, those who do not believe. I, I can understand that there's always uh, those who do not believe, those who have struggles. And sometimes unbelievers will consider that their struggles are intellectual. In other words, they would really like to believe, but, but they just can't. They can't believe because the intellectual problems... That's not true. They're moral problems, and that's, that's why I said there's a, a culpable blindness. There's a blindness that they are responsible for. You wouldn't say that if you talked to a person who was, you know, we might say legally blind. You wouldn't say you're responsible for that blindness. But in this case, they are. This is a section where Jesus is not uh, asking a lot of questions. It's it's pretty much all discourse. But he does ask some questions at the end. In fact, one author said this, Jesus is 40 times more likely to ask a question than to answer one directly. And he's 20 times more likely to offer an indirect answer as a direct one. In fact, T.S. Eliot said on the rock, O my soul, be prepared for the stranger. Be prepared for him who knows how to ask questions. That's what Jesus did. He ends this long discourse with a simple question. But if you do not believe Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? I want to go back to Arnold Potter. I came back from Australia, uh, moved to California, and then he moved a couple more places, and uh, finally he ended up in the great state of Iowa. And he ended up in Council Bluffs, Iowa. And uh, he had uh, Indian ink on his forehead that said, Potter Christ, the living God, morning star. And he had a few followers. He had this white robe that he walked around in. And, um, but in 1872, he announced to his congregation or his group that he was going to ascend into heaven. His time had come, and he was going to ascend into heaven. So he had his white robe. He had the ink on his forehead. And uh, he went to, the, to a cliff. And he got off the donkey, and he's, he's getting ready to ascend. And he has a few people watching him, and he jumps, but he doesn't ascend. He goes to the bottom of the cliff because uh, gravity doesn't have any theological preference. And his followers uh, find his body parts, I suppose, and bury him. And that ends Potter Christ. That's not true with our Lord Jesus Christ. He just kept saying the same thing. And people argued with him. Religious leaders argued. But he kept saying the same thing. And so, it makes you think, doesn't it? 
This is a pretty chilling uh, response to unbelief. What Jesus said is, you have to honor the Son as you honor the Father. And if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. It's not just our day and age. Every time Christians spoke like this, people hated it. And, and you have to decide if you're going to listen to the world. The world, I, I was listening to a, a couple actors and actresses, and this one actor said, I like music because it's not preachy. I thought, are you kidding me? This is a culture that is evangelizing. Our music is preaching. Everything is preaching. And what they are preaching is that Christ is a joy killer. Christ is a joy stealer. Christ's way leads not to human flourishing, but to stupidity and ignorance. Christ is not God. He's not worthy of worship. And His good news is not good news. And His church is a collection of hate-filled, ignorant bigots. And you shouldn't step foot in there. That's what they're preaching in every way and at every time. And if you believe that, there's going to come a time when just like Potter Christ... You will stand before that Christ. I've often thought, I cannot prove this, but I've often thought that unbelievers who hear the gospel will hear that gospel in their heads all eternity. They will, they will regret the day they heard it, the time they heard it, and they didn't respond. Well, or they did respond. But if you believe that Christ is the beginning and the end of joy, that Christ opens paradise for all who believe in Him, that He just showers His people with good things and blessings, and that He is the innocent, perfect substitute for your sin, for your sin, then you will have a very different view of Christ. If you think that His words matter, and that He is the treasure of your life, and that His words mean everything to you, and He Himself is to be glorified, loved, and honored, and that Christ is for every tribe, every race, and He is relevant in every age. What joy awaits you? What joy awaits you? So, I don't know, no one can ever know where anyone is at. But if you have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, what's the difference between you and an unbeliever? You know, if you, if you take his words and you say, well, that's, that's really good. I like that. It's a good thought. It's a good way to end the year. Happy, a little Christianity, it doesn't hurt anybody. I don't know about that. I don't know where you stand with Christ. You need to be someone who looks at the words of Christ and says His words are the words of God. He is God in the flesh. That's what we sing about this season. 
And so if you believe that, you are blessed whether you have a full uh, family of presence of people or if you have none of that. If you are all alone and, quote, lonely, because you are never alone with Christ. And he gives everything. He pours out everything to you. And I hope that's who you are this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word means everything to us. It is life-giving. And for those of us who know your word, just, just hearing it again is encouraging. We, we just can't get enough of your word. We can't get enough of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it encourages us to hear that you died for our sins, that you speak the words of eternal life. And so we drink in who you are, what you have said, and what you have done for us. Lord, we pray this now.